By the spring of 1972, the writing was on the wall when it came to future Apollo missions. Apollo's 18 and Beyond had already been canceled two years earlier, and by the fall of 1971, President Nixon had already floated the idea of ending the program at Apollo 15. That would mean, uh, ultimately, Apollo 16 became the penultimate moon landing under the Apollo program. Like 15, Apollo 16 was a J mission. That meant a longer stay on the surface, a focus on science, and the use of the lunar rover, our favorite vehicle of any kind ever. (laughs) While on paper, uh, this would seem like yet another lunar mission, and I'm sure that public interest was lower than ever, the crew of Apollo 16 would end up facing multiple challenges and ultimately a shorter mission than planned. Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. This is the next installment in our series marking the 50th anniversaries of the crewed Apollo missions. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. And today we're talking about the next to last moon mission, Apollo 16. Hey, Jason. Hey, Stephen. It's good to be back. It is. More Apollo. I like it. Uh, Let's start with the crew. The crew of Apollo 16 has some familiar faces. Of course, John Young, perhaps my favorite astronaut of all time, uh, tops in the astronaut draft whenever that happens. Uh, um, He was the mission commander. He had flown on Gemini 3 and 10 and Apollo 10, where he served as the command module pilot. He was the second American to fly in space four times after Jim Lovell, and he would go on to be the chief of the astronaut office and the commander of the very first space shuttle mission. Solid resume for John Young there. Yeah. Uh, Ken Manningly was the command module pilot. He had served on the backup crews for Apollo 8 and 9 and was supposed to be on Apollo 13. You're all picturing Gary Sinise right now, aren't you? I am. I literally am. (laughs) But he was grounded three days before flight after being exposed to the measles and was replaced by Kevin Bacon. I mean, Jack Swigert. It was Jack (laughs) Swigert. Uh, And Apollo 16's lunar module pilot was Charlie Duke. You may know Charlie Duke best as the guy who said, you got a bunch of guys down here about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thank you. He was the Capcom for Apollo 11. Um, And at 36 years old, he would be the youngest of the 12 Apollo astronauts to walk on the moon. I'm 36. I haven't walked on the moon. Get to it. What am I doing? (laughs) It's a good question. But this podcast, again, apparently. The backup crew was also full of seasoned Apollo astronauts. A little salt, a little pepper, well-seasoned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, paprika. Fred Hayes, uh, who had flown on Apollo 13, was the backup commander uh, Stu Rosa was the command module pilot. He'd flown Apollo 14 and Edgar Mitchell uh, also from Apollo 14. Now, Young and Duke chose Orion as the name of the lunar module and Mattingly chose Casper for the command and service module. Now, the first name came from the constellation Orion, sure. Mattingly said he called the uh, the command module Casper in honor of Casper the Friendly Ghost, just what you were thinking. And in a New York Times interview, he said, look, there are enough serious things going on in this flight. So I picked I picked a non-serious name for the CSM. I, I like it. I, I think, you know, more Snoopies and Caspers in, in Apollo missions. That's yeah, good. there's a lot of Snoopy stuff in NASA, for sure. Yeah. At this point in the Apollo program, we're well past the days of every mission bringing new hardware advancements or new procedures to test. Really, 15 was kind of the last big one with the lunar uh, the lunar rover. 
So 16 and 17, like you said, were freed up to explore more uh, on the science side, with the moon's geology and characteristics being a new focus. So the geologists really wanted the mission to go to Tycho Crater, um, the most prominent lunar nearside crater, because what they want to do is get samples of the interior of the moon, and what better place to do that than someplace that has been smashed by the impact of a meteor, because it'll blast out that volcanic rock, and they can uh, grab the pieces. Unfortunately, the terrain around Tycho was created uh, too rocky, and also too far from the lunar equator, which made it too dangerous to land on and too expensive in terms of the orbital mechanics that could take less stuff to and from uh, a far away from the equator location than they could from the equator. So they made a compromise. The compromise was the Descartes Highlands, which were considered another good candidate because of its unique lunar geology. To prepare for the mission, Young and Duke underwent many more hours of geological training than had been undertaken for previous missions. They visited sites across the U.S. that would prepare them for things like the terrain and sample types they were likely to encounter. Uh, get this, they even utilized craters left behind from the U.S.'s nuclear testing at the Nevada test site. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> well, and, and it, I know we talked about this before, but like one of the really important things about the Apollo mission that you have to understand all the Apollo missions is geology motivated so much of it. Astronauts were trained to recognize different terrain types from the air so that it w if you were in the CSM orbiting, you could be taking pictures and looking down and interpreting what you were seeing and on the ground so that if you were in those precious hours where you're walking around on the surface of the moon, you could identify rocks based on your visual inspection. And that took hours of training in order to learn what different rocks look like so that you could do it. It all pays off especially on this mission on Apollo 16. So Apollo 16 launched on April 16th, 1972, with no real noticeable issues during the countdown or launch, which is great. Uh, but once in orbit, a few things did pop up. Casper's environment control system indicated that it had sprung a leak, but that ended up being just instrumentation. But the S-4B, so that upper stage of the Saturn V, began venting helium basically from several different locations and the crew had to prepare the reaction control system to maintain attitude control. Something not expected at this point in the mission. Everything eventually settled down and the translunar injection burn was soon underway. After that, Mattingly executed the docking maneuver smoothly and once Orion was freed from the spent S-4B, it became clear that during the use of the CSM's reaction control system, particles of paint were coming off the limb in several places as a result of flexing panels. Yikes. So it's not quite sandblasting it off, but the panels were flexing and paint was flying off. These particles would make it harder to use the spacecraft's optical navigation system as the particles look like stars. And remember, they're all going in the same direction. So they're all, the particles don't fall away. They're just floating along with the spacecraft. So you're, then you look outside and you're like, is that a star or is it a paint flake? And you can't tell. Same thing had happened on 13 with their debris cloud after their yeah, explosion. Exactly. Yeah, it comes with you. Yay. So the need to ensure the viability of the limb, they need to make sure that these panels that had been flexed during this, these movements, that nothing, it was nothing more serious than just paint damage, basically. So the crew was instructed to open the hatch and inspect the inside of the vehicle uh, hours earlier than planned. 
Uh, thankfully, there were no signs uh, or or any any leaks or anything like that. It was just those outer panels flexing a bit. Now, on the way to the moon, the crew took part in several scientific experiments because NASA is nothing if they aren't filling your every waking hour as an astronaut with something that somebody wants you to experiment with. Uh, so there were experiments to confirm whether the light flashes seen by the crew on previous missions were due to cosmic rays zapping their eyes. They also had with them a lunar sample from Apollo 12, which was being returned to the moon to test the effects of changes in magnetism on the sample, right? Uh, leave only footprints, take only moon rocks, something like that. They brought it back. They brought it back to see if uh, that would change. It was in the lost and found. They're like, hey, I know where this belongs. I'll just point out, you take t- you take many, many, many moon rocks away and you bring one back. You're not really solving the problem, NASA. Come on. <laughs> 74 hours into their mission, the crew slipped behind the moon for the burn required to slow down an inner orbit uh, around the moon itself. Nine orbits after that, Young and Duke made their way into the limb to prepare for undocking. Here, the crew ran into another couple of issues. Uh, The limb's steerable antenna was jammed, so uh, this antenna could change direction independent of where the limb was facing, so they could always have it oriented to Earth. Uh, This meant that Houston could not upload instructions directly to the computer, and instead had to pass instructions for the computer through the the meaty, sweaty crew. Uh, data entry. Nobody signs up to be an astronaut for data entry. No. I'm in space, Come man. Come on. After separation, Mattingly reported an issue with the CSM. One of the control systems for pointing the service propulsion system, which is the the uh, SPS, it's the it's the main engine at the big end of the service module. It's the one that looks like a big rocket. Uh, there was redundancy built into the system, so it was still manageable, um, but without the backup that NASA prefers. Yeah. So at this point, they've got to make the call, right? You could recall Orion. It's not that far away yet. They had only really just separated. You can have the spacecraft redock and then use the limb's descent engine to return the crew to Earth, like our friends on Apollo 13. Mm -hmm. But once the crew would land on the surface, this wouldn't be an option because that motor stays on the surface, I guess, with that rock they took back. So Mission Control poured over the data uh, while the spacecraft orbited the moon in formation about 150 meters apart. And as it's going on, they're losing time. The The whole idea of this landing is that the sun is riding over Descartes. And as a, as a result, there are shadows because without shadows, the lunar surface is very hard to read. It's, it's basically featureless. And there are features, but you can't read them. So the shadows put them into relief. They give you a terrain map. The longer they wait, the fewer shadows there are. The shorter the shadows are and the harder it is to land. So you, you, there is a ticking clock here in a, in a way as the sun is slowly rising over Descartes. But on the limb, floating out there 150 yards away, things aren't looking great either. There's a regulator on the helium tank that's leaking. It's pressure. It's pressurizing the propellant tanks above nominal levels. So they had to use the limb thrusters to burn off propellant, which is fine, except you probably wanted to use that later. So you're reducing the amount of propellant that's left on the limb. Yeah, everything's a bit of a mess at this point. So back on Earth, astronauts and technicians, including Jim McDivitt, the Apollo 9 astronaut, who is now a manager. Uh, that's what happens in NASA. You just become the boss. Or you leave. Eventually. One of those. They're starting to work out what Mattingly's options are. Engineers at the contractor Downey 
uh, basically fed all this data into their mock-up of the SPS because they have all of this equipment on the ground too for this reason, for troubleshooting and figuring out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And they decided that they could live without the redundancy that they had that they had lost. And NASA told Mattingly that it was safe to proceed. Now, here's what's funny about this. Sitting there waiting, and remember, they're separated. Mattingly's by himself, because they've already separated. They're ready to go take the limb down, and Mattingly's going to circle the moon while they're down there. And it's, But then they've had all these problems that keep them from going. Mattingly is sitting there, and he's like, he's been through this. He's troubleshooted stuff. He's trained. And he thinks to himself, you know, there was this thing where some of the cables that were built were just a little bit too short. And so when the, the engine nozzle is gimbaled a little too far, they, they pull and they lose contact a little bit. He, also, he says, I wonder if that's what it is. And he also knew that both the primary and backup systems were in the same cable. So if that was the problem, it wouldn't matter if he used the backup. It still wouldn't work. Wow. And he was like, do I mention this? And he decided, I'm not going to mention it. They're going to figure this thing out. Me contributing these ideas is not going to help my case. I'm just going to not mention it. When he got back to Earth, he did tell Jim McDivitt this story. And and McDivitt said, uh, yeah, we had never we never even thought of that. And if you had mentioned that, we would have just waved the whole landing off. <laughs> but he didn't mention it. So uh, they proceeded. That's wild. Yeah. At this point, five hours have ticked by. They're behind schedule. And this meant the descent had to start at a much higher altitude than on previous missions. Normally, you would have time built in to slowly lower your orbit of the limb, but uh, they had to go basically straight down, and they still have the antenna issue, right? They still can't point the antenna freely from the limb, and so their initial direction was a bit unusual to keep communication as open as possible. Uh, Orion's descent went smoothly. John Young, love that guy, touched down only 270 meters north and 60 meters west of the original target. And at this point, Mission Control had decided Apollo 16 would spend one less day in orbit around the moon after the surface exploration had been completed. Mattingly did not like this because he had a whole packed schedule planned and they basically threw a bunch of stuff out and he had gotten like guarantees that they weren't going to do that and they did it anyway and he was kind of mad about that. Um, Beyond that, there were some in-orbit activities for Casper that were called off because NASA didn't want to burn that SPS anymore than what was absolutely necessary. So already they've shaved a day off the mission, but the stuff down on the moon will be allowed to continue. So, So let's talk about what's going down at the moon. Let, let's let talk about it. Now, nobody said that D- Charlie Duke was a particularly restrained person. Remember, woo, uh, we're, we're, we're turning blue down here. You got us breathing again, right? That's what he told Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong over the radio with the world watching after they landed on the moon. Well, Charlie Duke then got his chance to land on the moon, and it sounded a little bit like this. All right, so in between Charlie Duke saying, Whoa, man, and fantastic, you also heard John Young be slightly very slightly more restrained, uh, saying uh, we won't have to walk far to pick up the rocks because we are among them. It's all, it's all about the rocks. They're very focused on rocks, these mm-hmm. guys. They're very, 
that, I mean, can you blame them? They, they trained, they, they spent lots of time with rocks. Now we should talk about the deployment of the Apollo Lunar Surfix Experiments Package, ALSEP. These had been part of Apollo missions from the beginning. Uh, it's a big package full of scientific equipment, and that changed mission to mission. Uh, but they rolled it out after landing and installed it on the surface. And we need to talk about an unlucky guy named Mark Langseth. Mark Langseth was a geophysicist at Columbia University. And for six years, he'd been working on using the temperature of the lunar regolith at various points to learn about the interior of the moon. Apollo astronauts were basically supposed to drill into the surface and then place a thermometer 10 feet down. You're taking the temperature of the lunar surface 10 feet down. The experiment was first supposed to fly on Apollo 13. Obviously never made it to the moon. That one, that one burned up, yep. Yep. On Apollo 15... Astronaut Dave Scott had trouble with the drill and could only get the thermometer about five feet below the surface. So Apollo 16, it's his time to shine, right? He he wants to get good data and the astronauts want to get good data for him. Yeah, they're they're primed to do this. So and after the problems with that drill on, on 15, Apollo 16 had a redesigned drill. And Charlie Duke was raving about how well it worked. Look at that beauty go, he says, while he's <laughs> drilling. And after this would have been a very entertaining mission to just listen to the audio of. And after the thermometer was inserted, he said, Mark has his first one all the way into the red mark. So he's like, aha, we did something right here for Mark Langseth. He's going to be happy. He's very well aware that Mark Langseth has tried and tried again to get this data. And Charlie Duke it's like a personal point of pride that he's going to get him the data that he needed. It's one little problem, though. <laughs> the astronauts have these big, bulky suits, right? They really couldn't even see their feet. The cable for the heat flow thermometer had been coiled up in flight. Take up less space. Apparently, it retained some of that curl after it was unrolled on the lunar surface. We've all had this, right? You unroll a cable and it kind of retains some of that shape. And with lunar gravity, there's even less of a chance that, that the gravity will kind of straighten it out, right? It's even even more curled. Young had noticed this during training on Earth and mentioned it, but nothing was ever done to correct for it. And now on the moon, it looped around John Young's boot without him knowing. Charlie, what? Something happened here. What happened? I don't know. Here's a line that pulled loose. Uh-oh. What line is it? That's the heat flow. You can hear how disappointed John Young sounds there. And while engineers and astronauts back on Earth did eventually figure out a method to bring the cable in, uh, use a moon rock to like strip off the end of the cable. <laughs> Seriously, because they need something. We need something abrasive. How about a moon rock? Oh, yeah, we, we got lots of those. Snip it with scissors and then they'd reinsert it into the in experiment package. The mission managers decided it was just going to take too much time. And so they gave up, and Mark Langseth and taking the temperature of the moon would have to wait for another mission. John Young did not have a great time on the moon. <laughs> That's an understatement. Yeah, they were concerned about the astronauts not getting enough potassium, which might have caused some heart flutter in previous missions. So this time around, in the spacesuits, were uh, drinking bags with orange juice uh, with added potassium. Apparently, it was very acidic and was giving John Young an upset stomach. And in one pretty memorable incident, he complained about it when his microphone was accidentally left on. I got the parts again. I've got them again, Charlie. I don't know what the hell gives them to me. Certainly not. I think they had to sell them. I really do. 
At the end of that clip, you can hear the beeping from Mission Control. I've compressed the clip a little bit, but like there was a long period in there while they're just talking, and Mission Control's like beep, 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 yeah. beep, and finally they're like, "John, your mic's on." Yeah, <laughs> uh, they just had to. They just had to tell him. But I, I like the the humanity there. He's like, "If I ever see another orange." <laughs> <laughs> um, Charlie Duke also had orange juice problems when he moved his head uh, and bumped the microphone that was on his little communications hat while he was in the limb preparing for landing it triggered the valve on the drink bag and dispensed a blob a blob of orange juice it was not within reach of him then it would just sub- get absorbed into the hat fabric and then from there transmitted into his hair. So when he when they land on the lunar surface, it's your moment of triumph. It's the greatest moment in your life. And he took off his helmet. His hair was soaked with potassium-rich tang, basically. Mm. Like he had been shampooing with orange juice. A little memory of Florida for him there on the moon. That's right. That's right. Delicious Florida oranges. Now they're uh, you're 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 shampooing with it. <laughs> If we hadn't given you this impression before, just to be clear again, geology, it's all about the rocks. This mm-hmm. mission is about geology. It's not just collecting the rocks, but it's also looking, identifying very specific kinds of rocks, volcanic rocks that would help inform geologists about the interior of the moon and how the lunar surface formed. To find these specific rocks, the astronauts drove the lunar rover on three separate trips to nearby various craters in the hope that rocks ejected from those impacts would include volcanic samples. Like you said earlier, the stuff gets blasted out at the bottom mm-hmm. of these impacts. On this trip, the lunar rover logged 16 miles or 27 kilometers of distance and reached the highest altitude of any lunar rover by driving up a fairly steep hill. Yeah, apparently they didn't really notice how steep the hill is and then you get off the rover and you're like, oh, oh whoops, <laughs> we're, way, we're way up here now. Uh, unfortunately, at every turn, when the astronauts, these well-trained astronauts, look for rocks, they found a particular kind of rock, a breccia. Uh, breccia is a rock formed at a uh, high temperature from pieces of other rocks that have been melted together. It's basically formed by impacts, by lunar impacts. It's a bunch of rocks amalgamated together, and they had collected a lot of them on other missions. They were not looking for that kind of rock. They wanted the volcanic rock from deep inside the moon, and the breccias were everywhere. At one point, the astronauts collected the largest moon rock of the program, a single 26-pound, or 12-kilogram, Breccia named Big Muley. Big Muley. That's a great name. It was named after Bill Muhlenberger. Muhlenberger. Yep. Muhlenberger. Uh, he was the leader of the Apollo 16 field geology team, so they spent <laughs> a lot of time together in their training. Uh, it was actually located so close to where the lander sat down that the TV cameras could pick up a glint of light off of it. This was like right there. 
Um, the geologist hoped it was a crystal and authorized the collection of a much larger rock than anyone was ever supposed to collect. Yeah, they had to like figure out can this fit somewhere because it's this huge rock. And it was a breccia and it wasn't a crystalline. Yeah, it was just more disappointment, more rock disappointment. Uh, the outward extent of the rock collecting was probably house rock, which was a, a, like the name says, a house-sized boulder near the rim of one of the craters they were exploring at the edges of their uh, uh, their driving in the lunar rover, the North Ray Crater. Again, the hope was it would be a volcanic sample. They chipped a bunch of pieces off of it. Guess what? It was a very, very large breccia, another one. So how this turns out, uh, scientists at the time had thought the moon was a lot like the Earth, and its surface was formed by a lot of uh, volcanism over the years. The frustration of Apollo 16 finding basically endless examples of, of breccia was actually an important sign. So it's not what they had planned, but it's what they ended up with. Uh, but that was still a big teaching moment. It turned out the assumptions that geologists were making about the life of the moon were completely wrong. Yeah. This is... I mean, honestly, it's science kind of working at its best, right? They discover something unexpected. You have to rethink your assumptions. And in this case, it turns out the lunar surface is basically a product of endless bombardment of meteors. Yeah, they thought there was this Earth-like model that they really kind of had considered the most likely scenario where it had volcanoes and, and there would be lava flows. And that it turns out that they never really seriously considered the idea that the moon's surface was just being, for billions of years, just being hammered by impacts and that everything they were seeing was just part of another impact. Uh, and that it turns out that, that that was what the truth was. And that's, you know, science gets things wrong. Then you learn something, right? And you're like, oh, this is what we expected. And you learn something new. You, it, it's teaching you something new. I want to mention a creepy dream <laughs> that Charlie Duke had while they were doing their geology training in Hawaii before this mission. He had the flu, so it's literally a fever dream he had. But he, <laughs> but he was thinking of it when he was on the moon. He dreamed that he was driving the lunar rover with John Young. And they saw tracks on the moon that weren't theirs. And they followed the tracks and they found another lander that was like theirs, but not theirs. And there were two astronauts there that were like them, but not them. And, and so Duke and Young took samples of their equipment and their spacesuits to take back to Earth, where they discovered that all of the samples were 100,000 years old. Woo! That is super creepy. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, if you're going to the moon, you might have a dream like that. Anyway, I it struck me that this anecdote might actually be the inciting incident for a very fun science fiction novel that I read when I was a teenager. Uh, it was published in 1977. It's called Inherit the Stars by James P. Hogan, a guy who lived in my hometown, science fiction author in my hometown growing up. And I read this book. It, he he wrote it on a bet where he, he watched 2001 and said, I could write an ending that makes more sense than that. Uh, but when I heard this story, I thought, oh... This is totally where he got the idea, because Hogan's book does involve astronauts on the moon finding a corpse in a spacesuit that turns out to be 50,000 years old. And like, what? And how does that work? And it's a lot of fun. I recommend it. It's a fun book. Um, so uh, anyway, good uh, fever dream, Charlie Duke. <laughs> That's wild. It's like, uh, those tracks on arrows. Let's see where they go. <laughs> yeah. Who else is on the moon with us? So uh, I've got three kids, and... My youngest is still in the phase where, like, he collects rocks. Like, we just go someplace, like, look at this rock. You just pick them up. And then he sticks in his pocket. Let me yep. tell you, they're dirty. They lead to dirt <laughs> everywhere. And do. Apollo 16's whole thing was to collect a bunch of rocks. As a result, the limb ended up being just filthy with lunar dust. 
Duke and Young tried to clean it up as best they could before redocking with the command module, but it was a real mess. In fact, when they finally were back together with uh, Ken Mattingly, their fingernails had lunar dust under them. <laughs> yeah, they're just dirty. They're like uh, two kids coming in from the mud puddle, uh, is the impression I get. Um, speaking of Ken Mattingly, while uh, Duke and Young were down there looking for their doppelgangers or whatever was happening, <laughs> their, their spooky future past selves, uh, Ken Mattingly was making geological observations from orbit like they'd all been trained to do. Uh, he was capturing the solar corona in photographs. You know, you can only really see it on Earth during an eclipse, but they were able to to time it so that he could do that from uh, from the spacecraft. Um, and with Charlie Duke and his country music out of the cabin, he got to play the classical music that he actually liked while he was doing all of this. It's a, it's, I think he had a great time. They always talk about the guys up in the uh, command module being lonely, but I get the distinct sense from all the people who did it, that it was actually kind of like a a delightful thing to have your own spaceship and do, uh, you know, do stuff on your own. Yeah. Even if that spaceship may or may not have an engine that works anymore. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, who knows? Before we leave the moon, though, I want to mention the Lunar Grand Prix, in which John Young took the lunar rover for a drive, with Duke filming it with a 16-millimeter movie camera. And you can find stabilized footage of this. I'll have a link in the show notes to a video of it. Young is just letting it rip on the moon in this thing. It's fun. Yeah, he's he's doing, like, fishtails, and um, you can hear Duke. Uh, um, these guys had fun on the moon. I mean, they really did, other than the creepy looking for the tracks. Um, they had fun on the moon, Um he would take these, he would go over these little bumps and the whole like front wheel would come up and Duke would be like, yeah, you really got some air that time. <laughs> like he's like really into it. And obviously young is just uh, speeding around on the moon. It's, it's a, uh, that footage is spectacular, right? Cause it's been rescanned in film and then stabilized and it just, it looks great. It's amazing. Getting back to earth wasn't without its hiccups, as you may imagine. They're coming back a day early, like we talked about. So a bunch of science stuff had to be, jettisoned, uh, including a satellite that was intended to be released uh, to orbit the moon for a year because they weren't able to release it when it was planned. It ended up lasting, uh, it it lasted a month. So not good news for that team. Uh, No. Oh, well, like like I said, they promised lots of things and then they're like, no, you're coming back a day early. Yep. The uh, the LEM wasn't jettisoned properly, uh, possibly because somebody didn't set a switch properly before they buttoned it up. Uh, nobody really knows why, uh, but that means it tumbled after it was separated, which means NASA couldn't control it, which means it couldn't execute the rocket burn for a controlled deorbit, which means that the LEM orbited the moon uh, for about a year before eventually crashing into the lunar surface. There is one big fi- final milestone, though, of the journey. So on the way back, Mattingly spent 83 minutes outside retrieving film from the uh, one of the science instrument bays on the outside of the service module uh, with Charlie Duke standing in the hatch, you know, his head out the window watching. Mattingly was amazed at the emptiness of space and said that gripping that he was gripping the handrail so hard that he was surprised if he didn't leave indentions. Yeah, like he's going to, I'm going to leave my fingerprints here if I didn't have my gloves on because mm-hmm. he was gripping them real, because, you know, you're in space. And yeah, they got their moonwalk, but he got his spacewalk. So I feel like this is the most like fair of Apollo missions where the uh, the the command module pilot gets to do a spacewalk um, hand over hand, gripping really hard in order to get the film containers out of the uh, sim bay. But they did it. 
They did. Uh, and that was the end of the mission. April 27th, 1972, Orion splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, picked up by the USS Ticonderoga. And that was that. After the mission, Young and Duke went on to serve as the backup crew for Apollo 17, with Duke retiring a couple years later in 1975. John Young, of course, as we mentioned, stayed on with NASA, actually all the way until 2004. Mattingly commanded two space shuttle missions and retired in 1985. John Young passed away in 2018 at the age of 87. Uh, He was a little bit older than the other two guys. Charles Duke and Ken Mattingly are both still alive, each at the age of 86 as of this recording. While on the moon, Duke left two items behind. The first was a photo of his family enclosed in plastic, signed by Duke's family and included this message. This is the family of astronaut Duke from planet Earth, landed on the moon April 1972. Do you think another crew found it and realized it was 100,000 years old? Oh, what if their doppelgangers found it? No! No! (laughs) I shall be astronaut Duke from planet Earth now. Oh, it's so upsetting. (laughs) The other item was a commemorative medal issued by the U.S. Air Force, which was celebrating its 25th anniversary back in 1972. He took two medals, leaving one on the moon and bringing the other one back. He later donated it to the National Museum of the United States Air Force at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. And today, the Apollo Command Module uh, is on display at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Casper. I've seen it twice. I've been there two times. It's it's fantastic. All burned up. Uh, now, obviously, the ascent stage of the Lunar Module orbited that moon, the moon for a year, and they don't even know where it impacted. Um, likewise, the S-4B stage uh, lunar crash site was unknown until the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter actually spotted it in early 2016 and that's uh that's apollo 16 that is we got one more to go that's a good mission you know nobody was watching they talked about how the families had to come down to nasa in order to see what was going on but the film footage is is amazing that that uh the lunar rally with the rover is great the grand prix um these two guys are full of personality um there's you know geology is never gonna make a lot of people excited but it also fundamentally helped us understand the formation of the moon so it's actually you know pretty pretty good i wish they had been able to you know scrape the moon rocks on the on the cable and plug it back in it's too bad they didn't get to do that but this is a you know it's a science mission like this is this is what they did is they did a bunch of experiments and they did a bunch of um adventuring around and looking at rocks and trying to collect the right samples and that's that's what this stuff is all about. Uh, it's too bad that people were not paying as close attention, but it was a very successful mission focused on planetary science. And I think uh, I was really enjoying diving into it because it's not one of the well-known missions, but there's a lot of great stuff in it. Yeah, and, and they overcame a lot of hardware issues that you know were arguably quality issues at the, the various uh, partners that NASA was using. I mean, issues with the LIM, issues with the Saturn 4B, Issues with the command service module. I mean, we didn't really even get into, but there were like issues with like some experiments not working in the sim bay as pos- as the way they were supposed to. Uh, but they overcame all of it, and yeah, uh, even definitely the a successful juice. mission. Even the orange juice, they that's right overcame that. What's well, good? It moisturizes your hair, you know. <laughs> it's not the potassium. Don't don't like again. I'm sure John Young. What he said something like, you know, I like an orange once in a while, but yeah. <laughs> It's like next time I have an orange, that's what I'm gonna that's what I'm gonna think too. Thank you, John Young. If you want to read more about Apollo 16, we have some links for you in our show notes. 
at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 168. There's one more to go. We'll be back for Apollo 17 at the end of the year. But uh, Jason and I may be back before then. We are recording these uh, as we feel like news warrants. So we just had episode 167. that had some news in it. Uh, so definitely stay subscribed to the feed. There's more coming. Yeah. Uh, but we'll be back at some point in the future. How does that sound? Who knows what will awaken us from our slumber. Hopefully it's not our creepy moon doppelgangers. <laughs> Jason, until next time, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Bye, y'all. <laughs>